Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, remember the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 1990s? Our guest today is George Mumford, a.k.a. the Mindfulness Performance Whisperer. His credit is Phil Jackson's secret weapon to winning eight, get it, eight NBA titles. He is highly acclaimed leading expert in sports psychology and performance and the author of The Mindful Athlete's Secrets to Pure Performance. His own personal story of overcoming obstacles and determination will inspire us to get ahead, find that peace and become better leaders and better people. George, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett with guest host, Tricia Ben, Chief Community Officer, the C-Suite Network. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, uh, Tricia, and welcome to all the folks on the call. I'm excited anytime I get a chance to talk about uh, these things that matter, mm-hmm. they get to the heart of the matter, actually, and has to do with, uh, it's interesting, I have a lot of handles and the handle that, that sticks out is the performance whisperer. And so it's all about performance. So whether we're talking about athletics or business or just interacting with our loved ones and our the people we lead or the people that we follow, that there that comes down to this, this idea of being authentically yourself and being able to perform in the immediacy of the experience, regardless of the amount of tension, pressure, stress. I love that. And the fact of the matter is our personal experience with our family members and friends versus our business performance or athletic performance, whatever that performance is, there's no saying which one's actually more stressful. I'd love to hear more about your definition of mindfulness and how you express that as you're working with the the athletes, the business leaders um, and individuals that you work with. Yes. So there's many definitions and they all have some validity. Uh, but to me, mindfulness is simply mirror mind or is the opposite of mindlessness. And so in other words, mindfulness is a process that allows us to see things clearly um, because what happens is, um, so in the process of perception, let's just say this is what happens. So, and, and the process is we have like, say, um, so let's say we're just sitting here, we're talking, and the fire engine comes by. And so there's sound. So the process of perception through the six sense doors is that there's an object like sound. And so in order for me to hear the sound, there has to be my ears have to work properly, and my consciousness has to be available to connect with that sound. So we have what we call connection, and we connect to something. And then when we connect to it, these things happen very quickly. There's only a short space of just really hearing the sound before we in, before we hear the we feel the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral neutrality of it. And then there's the uh, labeling of it or the perception of it. And then there's the thinking about it. So all this stuff is going on all the time. So when we take in the sound, we don't hear the sound without all of the other stuff. And that space between stimulus and response is very narrow. And so we don't give ourselves the opportunity to create space so that we can actually take in more of the object without interpreting, oh, it's a sound, it's a fire engine, and you know, I'm, I'm having a conversation here and it's interrupting me and I'm upset and all that, when actually the only thing that's happening is a sound comes into awareness and then 
Can we create space where we can just hear the sound, let it speak to us, and then let it go by so that we don't keep it in our mind and now we're cluttered and we can't be present for the conversation. So that's just every sense door. So it's really more about how do we create the space between stimulus and response? And how do we see things in fresh ways where we're not relating to them based on what we what we know, but allowing it to speak to us in its own language in the immediacy of experience. So it takes this ability to be vulnerable or be open to seeing things in fresh and new ways. So so that's it's really hard. It's something that's challenging to talk about, but you know it when you see it. But it's really more about like we say, be mindful of the time. So, okay, I got to be mindful of the time. There's a certain period of time, but I also have to be mindful. Uh, why am I being mindful of the time? Am I looking for a particular time? Or am I looking for, uh, you know, that I don't have enough time? So you have to have, the mindfulness has to have some some information, some insight, some knowing of why we being mindful and what are we being mindful of. So mindfulness in and of itself is not, this could be a mirror mind, you reflect something, but okay, so you want to see and know what it is and how it impacts what you want to do. So all of these different things have to be held. But ultimately, being present means being in this moment right now with no um, no preconceived notions of what you think is going to happen versus letting what happens happen. And then you can think about it afterwards. It's a subtle thing, but it's huge. I love that. And we all have some uh, some experience of how a second can expand to hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yes. I have not um, heard mindfulness described in that way because your definition of mindfulness is very much tied to purpose and intent mm-hmm. and the action that comes from that. So, so there's so much more to unpack there. And I know there's going to be a ton of great questions on this, George, but, but I want to start with your own personal journey. What I, I know you faced your own personal adversity and you really got to the heart of the matter for you in order to be able to share this intelligence, this, this outcome oriented approach to being in that moment. So can you share with us your journey um, and how you got to this point of having this ability to share it with others? Yes. So when I was in college, I played basketball in high school and in college, you know, I would have been a walk on, but uh, you know, I, I got injured in my sophomore year when I was going out for the varsity team and that ended my basketball career. And, and so I was also injury prone. So I, I, I ended up getting addicted to pain meds and the drugs and alcohol. And so in 1984, roughly around 36 years ago, when I got, I went into a detox and got clean. Um, when I came out, I had chronic pain and I realized I had been self anesthetizing. Uh, so I had to learn how, how do I manage this pain? How do I manage my recovery? Because, you know, slips are very probable if I'm not able to, to see what I'm doing and understand what the consequences are. So it's like if I take the analogy of drinking, one drink is too much and not enough at the same time. So the best way not to drink is not to drink, is to not to drink in the first place. But I have to understand how is my mind, body, heart and soul interacting in a way where I'm able to see and, and to be able to understand how am I going to relate to the situation? How can I create space between stimulus and response? So I'm really reflecting on what I'm doing and what the consequence, consequences may be so that I'm not doing, finding myself in a place where I didn't want to be. So first thing I noticed was I had chronic pain, migraine headaches and, you know, back issues. I had back issues for a long time. And so I couldn't take pain meds because my nervous system doesn't know the difference between, medic, you know, pain medication and just 
being triggered, my addiction being triggered. So I was involved in this um, HMO where I had this stress management program. It was uh, it was a uh, kind of a study, and so they would you know they make us you know urine samples and, and saliva, and they were tested before and after. And so they gave us these. Uh, this process had to do with me learning about my mind body system, learning how to meditate, learning how to regulate my thoughts. So it was a little bit of, you know, like a spiritual practice to learn how to meditate or do yoga and stuff like that. But also for me to take responsibility and to learn about my brain, how the mind and body works. And at that time, we were just getting into the mind body connection. And and the, and the person that was teaching me was this woman, Dr. Joan Borosenko at the time. She was one of three psychoneuroimmunologists. So I got in. That's how I got into it. I learned about mindfulness. I learned, but not only about mindfulness, but how my mind and body works, how the mind body works and how my mind body works mm-hmm. and understanding how to, how to manage stress. So it wasn't so much understanding between the space, between stimulus and response. My interpretation of what my experience was determines how much stress I experience and how much I, I develop what they call self-efficacy, which is, okay, this is happening, but based on what's happening, how do I relate to it in a way that empowers me or allows me to be more myself, to be more more present. So I got into it because my, excuse my uh, language, my ass was on fire. <laughs> and the sense of urgency was in my face. And I had been offered these practices before in college. And I said I wasn't interested, but I was at a point where I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. And it totally changed, changed my uh, quality of life. It changed my whole way of being. And because of that, I started teaching it because in my mind, the best way to learn something is to teach it. And the best way to keep something is to give it away. And so it's connecting with your reciprocity. But but that's what happened. So I learned about it. And I just and me being a recovering professionist, we had a syllabus in the in the 10 week course. I read every book on that syllabus. And then I read books that that it referred to in that syllabus. Mm-hmm. So the last 36 uh, years plus I've averaged over a book a week as well as videos and everything. So I I realized that I I was pursuing excellence and wisdom for grace and ease. So I needed to be intellectually stimulated. But I wanted to know how, how, why is it I got clean and I found the motivation to do something that most people can't do? What is that about? Mm -hmm. How do we motivate ourselves and how do we communicate in a way where we're more authentic and we're able to align what we say with what we do and, and that sort of thing. And, and the authenticity of this ability to be real, this ability to be present, this ability to learn from our mistakes was huge for uh, pure performance, just being able to perform in a way where um, you're not driven by greed or by fear. You're just doing the thing in the moment because that's what's most important, just being really present and doing what you can do in the moment without worrying about the results. And that's very challenging for us to do on any level as to not worry about how am I doing instead of focusing on what you're doing in the moment. C-Suite Radio. The, the purpose and empowerment is fascinating. And, and I think for all of us as business leaders, the ass on fire concept is a technical term that all of us understand. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are those moments where you have to step up and you have to create ownership and that alignment, not only for yourself, but for your team as well. And, and I think with your experience, I mean, we fast forward to the 90s, um, Phil Jackson credits you with the dynasty that was the Chicago Bulls championship run. I mean, it's incredible. I I was a competitive athlete, uh, trained at the Olympic Training Center in Canada for figure skating. 
for a coach to say, I credit George Mumford with this. And, and he's documented in the book as, you know, in the introduction, he's there saying this, George. I mean, that is incredible. How did you go in? You know, Jordan has stepped away and you come in and you create an environment for them to succeed beyond this notion of they have this big star. Um, and then, of course, all the competing interests, needs, and and where everyone on that team was in their own personal journey and understanding of how they're contributing to the success. How did you how did you go into that situation and create that kind of thinking and understanding in that team? Well, that's a great question, and and I just have to correct you a little bit. They had uh, they won three championships before I got there. Right, so I but three more, George. Three more. Well, three more with them and five with the Lakers. But so the right. process definitely works. Yeah. But it was really my background because I played basketball and because I roomed with Dr. J in college. Mm-hmm. I had street cred and I worked in a, at that time it was called the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Program. And what happened was Phil was talking to the founders of the organization I worked in, John Cabot Zen, the B1. And Phil had this idea that during training camp, he likes to bring something in to help the guys because he believes in dealing with the whole person. They have a mind, body, heart, and soul. And so he wanted to help them deal with the stress of success. So he brought me in and, and my experience being around professional basketball through Julius, Dr. J, my roommate, and, and, and Al Skinner, who was my other roommate. And I had other friends who played pro, so I knew the game. So I went in there with the idea of how am I going to relate to them in a way because they were in a crisis MJ had left. So I offered them this idea of, as I talked about a little bit, the crisis has two meanings. One meaning is danger. The other meaning is opportunity. So you can meet this moment in a way where you can come out stronger than you were before. So it becomes a stepping stone, not a roadblock. And so I went in and I talked to them about being in the zone, being in flow. They could understand that. And I talked to them about being a warrior. I studied martial arts, Tai Chi, and so for a long time. So I knew if I could talk to them about being in the zone, being present and playing at that at a high capacity, that that they would be interested in that and also being interested in being a warrior, being fearless. So I think of this process is leading to fearlessness and achievement so that you are able to say yes to whatever comes and then respond to it in that space between stimulus and response based on your goals, based on who you say you want to be, based on where you say you want to go so that you can embrace making mistakes. You can embrace this as an opportunity to really take your game to the next level. So it was really more like a a mindset change, but also I didn't just work with the players. I worked with the coaches and, 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 the, and the support staff. So we had to create a what I would call a learning environment. In martial arts, we talk about the place of practice is a dojo. And so in the, in the Zen tradition, the idea is that jo, the dojo is a place of enlightenment. This is where enlightenment is going to happen. So in this case, so it's the basketball, you know, the practice facility, the team room. We're going to create this space where we can actually be our true selves and compete at, at higher and higher levels. That, so that the idea was not where we were, but how could we get to higher levels by moment to moment managing ourselves in a way where we're not only managing the stress, but we're living in wellness because we're way beyond the stress because we're focused on getting better and, and connecting and, and just this process of continuous process improvement, which means also growing physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And also uh, the one of the sayings, Phil, 
uh, used to quote all the time, which I have embraced, is the Jungle Book set, saying that says the strength of the wolf is in the pack and the strength of the pack is in the wolf. So it's yes and, not either or. And so we have to make right. everyone individually stronger and then be strong and collectively. And so this is an opportunity for people to fill in the the gap where MJ wasn't there. And so now we had to do it by committee and each person had an opportunity. So when you see it as an opportunity, and this is one of the things we know that enhances our ability to be successful is to see, see stressful situations as a challenge. I, I love that. It, it just lends itself entirely to the question of how do you how do you advise, how do you speak to the executives that you're working with now in terms of how they apply this to what's what's happened over the last few minute, months over in addition to our normal business stresses? Right. So it's interesting because my definition of leadership um, is that we have this old industrial age paradigm of of carrot and stick, uh, I need to manipulate, uh, you know, make people do things rather than having this idea of, of, of sharing power. And one of the three things Phil talks about, about giving up control, trusting the moment and compassionate living, compassionate action. So you see I and the other one. So it's really more about if I'm going to lead people, I have to lead by example, but it's really more about coming from mutual benefit, mutual respect, coming from abundance and realizing that pure, you know, when, when you're, if you want power, you got to let go to grow. So if you share power, you'll have more power. And so it's this idea of talking to them about their own self-development. So you got to begin with yourself. So how are you managing your mind, body, heart, and soul? And can you have that in alignment instead of your body working against your, your mind, your mind working against your body, or you not even being in touch with your emotions because you think you have to be all rational without understanding is the emotional content that makes everything else work and that you are you are it's important to connect to something greater than yourself and so if you see your leadership as a a, a role where you're being a service to those who follow you that's a totally different psychology is a totally different orientation that allows there to be a a sharing and a caring and also holding each other accountable because there's a whole process involved. I won't get into it, but it's really more about to be a leader. You have to be yourself. So if you don't know who you are, then your leadership is probably going to be a little bit um, um, inauthentic. Mm -hmm. And so it's really understanding you begin with yourself. And then that's the only trickle down theory I believe in is if the leadership is doing it, it trickles down everybody else. It's a lot easier than than everybody on the bottom doing it, but the leadership is not. And if you're in that old paradigm of control, not sharing, not caring, not being inclusive, not uh, sharing not only the power, but the but the benefits of it, then you're going to have people who are going to do things, hope it doesn't work, but they're not going to give wholeheartedly or 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 see the situation as we're all in it. I have skin in the game. This is not your team. It's our team. It's our organization. And even though you you have a leadership role in it, to the degree that you allow me, you treat me as a whole person, I will give you my full deployment of myself, of my heart. And the only way you do that is through the reciprocity. What you talked about is understanding that we're in this together. So it's all for one and one for all. It's a round table. And so instead of having another hierarchy, it's more like the inf information, the resources, the uh, power, the respect, 
mutual respect, mutual benefit has to be go in all directions. And so a leader has to be really cognizant of who they're leading and knowing who they are and, and understand how to get them to, how to empower them, how to inspire them and how I, to include them. I just love everything you're saying, George. And uh, we we use the um, framework of conditions of satisfaction. What are your conditions of satisfaction? One of mine, my, my first one is always reaching for my great and helping everyone that I touch get to their great because I believe in everything you just said. While I'm sleeping, somebody's working on how we're getting there faster, better, smarter, um, more efficiently, effectively, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I, I love what you're saying. I'm curious when you're working with somebody and helping them align uh, as a leader around these uh, parameters and these uh, frameworks, what are your conditions of satisfaction with them? My condition of satisfaction with them is for them to be themselves, for me to help them release the divine spark or the masterpiece within. And so it's, it's, it's me being a service, like two questions, what do you want and who do you need to be to get what you want? And so then getting into the process of that. So it's, it's, so my, you know, this, I'm doing what I was put here to do. And so it's not a job, it's a calling. And my, and my thing is for me to, if, if I'm doing my job properly or if I'm relating to them properly, then them, whatever I give to them comes back to me. So if I'm giving them love, compassion and, and pure performance, then it's going to come back to me. So it's all about them. How do I chip away to let them express themselves in their own way, respecting who they are and their uniqueness and help encourage them to express that in a way that 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 that. that that, you know, everybody feels connected to something greater than themselves, but they got to be fully whole and be connected to their whole being if you're going to help other people be connected to theirs. So it's not yes and, it's it's, it's a yes and, not an either or. So as I'm, and I don't have to be at a certain place, I can just start where I am. And if I'm authentic and if I'm sharing and caring and understanding how to relate and learning uh, together with mutual benefit, mutual respect, then it'll grow into something really amazing. So I want to share an experience. So when there was, um, and they showed it in the last dance. So we'll take this situation where it was 1998, the last dance, the last season, they're playing against Indiana Pacers, seven game series. And what would happen was that Michael Jordan, um, Ron Hopper and, and Scottie Pippen would, they call it the breakfast club. They would meet for breakfast and talk about the game and everything. So they got together at MJ's house before they had practice, before practice, and they would reflect and think about how are they going to approach this team? And they do study and everything. So then they they went to Phil and said, hey, Phil, we think Scotty should, my play, uh, would guard, should guard Mark Jackson. And Phil said, okay, because what Phil has done in their development is there'll be games when uh, Tex Winner's assistant coach would say, call timeout, coach. And he says, no, I'm not going to time, call timeout. They got to work this out. They got to figure this out on their own. So having them to be free thinkers and having them see the game and allowing them to, to express themselves so that now you got a partnership. You don't have to go in and just dictate. They come and say, hey, coach, this is what we're volunteering. We think this will work. And, of course, it did. Mark Jackson had six turnovers in the first quarter. So this is when you know that the leadership is coming from the top, from below, from the side. It's just everybody has skin in the game and everybody is committed 
to the goal because mm-hmm. they have poor values and you have the worthy cause and everybody's all in because they feel like a whole person and they're related to as a whole person. And, that, and as a result, that frees the leadership of to focus on other things because he has he has people, especially your best players, your best leaders are more, most bought in. And it's not because you manipulated them, it's because you created a space for them to be who they are and to commit to certain ways of being to be connected to something greater than themselves. It's, it's fantastic. And the business analogy, it, it's just an absolute direct transposition of the exact same mm-hmm. principles. I, I, I love that. Um, and you know uh, how we expect our teammates to be leaders and supporters in everything they're doing at every level and every expertise that's brought to the table. I'm curious, and, and then we'll go to q and I know there are, are going to be great questions for you. Um, I'm curious, how do you win over cynics? How do you think about cynics, George? I love cynics. <laughs> uh-huh. Because, um, so there's one thing to be cynical and there's another thing to be resistant or and uh, don't have the ability to be to have at least have self honesty, and so it's really more about uh, connect uh, encouraging people to connect to something greater than themselves. And a lot of times we have cynics and whatever because they don't understand. So what I do is I the way I approach things, I I don't ask you to believe in what I say. I ask you to see if it's true in your own experience. So just check it out, suspend disbelief and see what's happening. But there's some people who just just are not interested because maybe they have so much conflict inside that they're dysfunctional to the degree that they're not able to be open for, because you have to have a readiness, there's a readiness principle involved here. So some people are just not ready. Like I wasn't ready in college for, for these teachings that I actually received at some point. So there has to be a sense of urgency or a sense where they realize that the status quo just won't make it. Right. Pain if, points. Yeah. Yeah. If you stay with the status quo, you got to go. Right. I love it's really it. Simple. Okay. It's, it's really simple. And to ask them, how, how's things working out for you? And if they're not, okay. So if you're interested, here's some things you might try or you might be open to this. So that's where sharing with them a vision of possibility where they feel like, okay, I, you know, I'm into that. So when I come in and I say, Hey, you like being in flow? You like what that feels like? Say, yeah. Okay. So here's, here's what we can do. But here's the caveat. If you try to get in the flow, you won't. So, but there's a process that as a byproduct of doing these things, you will be flow ready and have more flow experiences. And so it's really just, it's like not really selling them in the sense of convincing them of something they don't want, but but creating uh, a vision of possibility that they want to step into, that they feel impelled, compelled, and excited about. It's because we live into the future we see. So if your future, your view of the future is not so rosy, why would you be excited about that? Right. I, I, so there are applications, not only in terms of how we run our businesses, but think about helicopter parenting. We take away pain points that right. our children, right. our coworkers, mm-hmm. or, you know, anyone we're coaching or influencing need to feel in order to be motivated yeah. to change. C-Suite Radio. I know there's going to be so much more there. We're going to go to Q&A. Greg, I know you got some great questions lined up for George, so I'll hand things over to you. Thank you Absolutely. so much, George. Absolutely. This has been fantastic. All right. So one thing you hear a lot uh, in the NBA is you hear about a, uh, in order to have success, you need to buy into a system. So people forget that before Phil Jackson, there was Kevin Lockery and Doug Collins coaching the Bulls, but they didn't really get success until they, they bought into the system. So if you're a new manager, so let's extend the metaphor. If you're a new manager, you're a new employee 
at a company. How can you convince people that have been there for a long time, superstars or not, to buy into your system if you're the new person in? Yes, well, well, if you're going into a new system and the system is there, uh, the first thing that has to be communicated is the fact that if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to keep getting what we're getting. And if you don't want to get what you're get what you're getting, then you have to be open to doing things differently. And so then then you have to talk to them about that. But then we're talking about people who are let's just talk about mindset. So the mindset, and in my book, I talk about the two wolves. Uh, one wolf for simplicity is fear. The other wolf is love. And the Cherokee grandfather is talking to his grandson and saying, I have these two wolves fighting this ferocious battle inside of me. One is fear. The other one is love. And the young, young man says, which one will win? And the grandfather says, the one that I feed. And so the first thing we have to understand is unless we get people out of survival mode, whether the reptilian brain, fight, flight, or freeze, there's no ability for them to learn because their middle brain is stuck. And even though they know things, they won't have access to it. So we got to get people out of survival mode into growth mode. Along those lines, we have a question from Tina Greenbaum. How do you deal with defiant teenagers to build them into future leaders? So I, I guess, you know, you're dealing with a lot of young men in athletics, but you're also, even if you're in, in, in companies, in corporate America, you're dealing, which you deal with quite a bit, you know, these are young men and women, and they're stuck in their ways. They're defiant. How do you get them to be team players? Well, by not trying to get them to be team players. By um, meeting them, you gotta you got to meet them where they are. It's, it's in the NLP, Neuro Linguistic Program, we call it um, leading and pacing. So you got to develop some rapport. So you got to relate to them as a person and try to see things how they see things. And also your attitude of not thinking you're going in and fixing them or making them better or doing what they should be doing rather than trying to meet them who, where they are and relate to them as if they are who you expect them to be. So you you have to start with their basic, you know, their masterpiece within. As you talk to the masterpiece, there's Christ consciousness, the, the, the um, Buddha nature, the Kuan Yin energy, whatever you want to call it, divine spark. If you relate to them as on soul to soul, or as a human being, a whole person to a whole person, you have more opportunities to connect with them, but you got to connect with them before you can lead them. Excellent. Oh, it's all about the connection first. So here's a, here's a question about being in the moment, about being mindful in the moment. So once again, I'm going to go back to the basketball metaphor. Uh, when, you, when you have to shoot a free throw, everything stops. You know, you're, you're running a game, it's flowing, and people are jumping, and there's a lot of action, and all of a sudden, everything stops. And you have to focus. And it's the same thing with with people in their daily lives, in their workplaces. There's a lot of things going on. And at certain times, you just got to stop and focus. You got to lower your pulse rate and concentrate on the job at hand. How do you do that in a mindful way to be successful? Because some of your greatest NBA players are bad free throw shooters because they can't just focus in that particular moment and cut out the crowd and cut out the noise. Well, a lot of it has to do with wrong effort, which is trying too hard or playing or having thoughts in their head about, you know, this is really important. I got to make this and I missed the last one, all that. That's all noise. You have to be able to step up to the free throw line and let go and just just not think about anything. Just focus being in your body. You breathe and then you, you know, even if you're, your directed thought is what I call it, rhythm flow, let it go. And you just go shoot. You're not thinking about whether you're going to make it or not. You're just 
letting your body do what you practice all the time, but you got to get your mind out of the way or your mind right, which is just don't think about anything, just be. Along those lines, um, right now the players, it's such an easy metaphor with you and I appreciate that, the players are playing without, without fans in, in the crowd, which must be very different because you're not getting the, either the reinforcement from the yes. crowd. I think or- it's great because, you know, you, you, when I talk about the five superpowers in my book, uh, mindfulness, diligence, um, focus or concentration, insight, trust, those things are like a power plant. So you have to be have internal locus of control. You generate that excitement because that's a challenge. When when the environment is 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 motivating you or giving you the energy, you're 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 codependent on the environment. Now I'm not saying that that is not good because it's always great having that support. But you have to now they got to self regulate. They have to generate the energy from within. So that they can they can do it. So it's actually an opportunity for them to be more inner directed than to worry about the crowd. That's why some folks are really good at playing on the road because they have a way of coming from that what I call the eye of the hurricane, where it doesn't matter what the what's happening in the environment. What matters is what's here and how we're seeing things. And so it's really more about using this opportunity. How do I self-regulate? And if I'm being in the moment, I'm going to generate my own energy. I'm going to get in the flow, which is effortless. And it doesn't matter who's there and who's not there. What matters is you being fully engaged, fully employed, deployed in what you love to do and the love of the game, having fun and, and being able to just play for the love of the game. That's where that comes in. And that could be the power. The, you generate your own power by being in flow or, or understanding that force is something that you have to keep adding to when you have power it flows so and when you have when you are connected meaning with with action with meaning or being on a mission to stand locked into what you're doing if you're playing for somebody something great in yourself or for others then you can you can access that power along those lines we have a lot of people who are asking steve common and uh and to Teresa rose just talking about how do you turn uh, that into muscle memory. So basically, you do it once. Yeah. You sink the free. You sink the free throw. You you capture that moment, right? You know what you know the the state of mind you need to be in to sink that free throw. How do you get that back each time you go to the free throw line? Yes, by not trying to get it back. Just get up there, relax, and just just be in your body and just shoot the shot. Just the next thing. Be in the moment. Be present, and just just not thinking. And and even though thoughts are going on, it's like having the thoughts be like like background music in a restaurant. But the other thing is directed thought, okay? Just be with the ball, feel the ball, and just rhythm, flow, let it go, whatever you need to do. What I call directed thought. So it directs you what you're doing, but then once you get directed there, there's no need to think. There's no need to have this idea, I have to be in a certain mindset. That's a bunch of, that's all noise. That's also all thoughts. All right, now Karen Bales wants to know, if you were to apply these concepts to building a digital community, where would you start? Where you are and start with, okay, what do you, what's your intention? What are you building? And what's, what is, what's the goal and what's the process you're going to do to get there? So you begin where you are. And if you just pay attention, uh, just do what you know to do. And the next step will be given. But if you're an analytical person, you, you might have a, a mind map or you might have an idea, but sometimes in these new domains, we don't know what we don't know. So it's really a matter of just showing up and see what you can learn as you move through it. It's like if you watch Indiana Jones, 
uh, they would say to him all the time, oh, Andy, what are we going to do next? And he said, I don't know. I'm making it up as we go along. And but it means but being present and, and being clear about what you want and what you don't want. And sometimes if you don't know, you just have to see what comes up and then trust. OK, that feels right. That doesn't feel right. That's an alignment. or oh, I'm interested in that. So there has to be this ability to explore and investigate and try because we learn by trial and error. So before you talked about the muscle memory, I just want to go back to that real quickly. So there's no muscle memory. It's really neural nets in your brain and it's neuroplasticity. And there's four optimum steps to neuroplasticity. One is you have to have your, your, your aerobic rate up so that you have the oxygen. And the second thing is everything is done in increments. So baby steps. And the third thing is it's got to be hard to do, but doable. So you got to get out of your comfort zone in order to learn. And then the fourth thing is you have to bring interest into it so that you stimulate the motivational circuits in the mind. So, and then you do repetition, repetition over and over. uh, And you do it by just being mindful, but not trying to think, but just letting it happen. And then letting yourself get into that, create that neural net where you're being mindful and you're, and you're self-correcting. And so the brain knows, okay, that one works. And the more you do it, so it's, you can't get beyond repetition, error correction. That's a big part of it. All right. And then Al Gangani wants to know how you deal with unpredictability, you know, the so-called yes. jump ball. Yes. So there's a military term they use all the time. It's called VUCA, V-U-C-A. And when they're out on reconnoitering or whatever, out on patrol, or whatever, but it's true for us in life as well. So VUCA is things are volatile, uncertain complex and ambiguous moment to moment. So how do you deal with it? By be still and know and just see what's there and let it speak to you. As long as you know what your goal is, if you can create space, you'll figure it out. All right. And then finally, for all the Philadelphia fans that are tuning in right now, the Sixer fans, they want to know what Dr. J was like as a roommate. I guess you guys went to UMass together. Yes. Was he, was he a good roommate or was he a bad roommate? Um, so I'll go back to that time back in 1970s, early 70s, 71, whenever it was, um, I had known about Dr. J when, when I, I had gone there because a friend of mine saw him play and said, you got this really good guy. So when I got there and of course we became friends and we played basketball together and that sort of thing. And when people ask me, what, do you, what what's your roommate like? I said, he's the nicest person you would ever meet. And that's what he was like. So obviously a uh, very kind, intelligent, caring uh, human being. And here's the thing. So I'm, I'm one of 13. So my younger brothers would come up and hang out with us sometimes uh, on a weekend. And he would take my brothers to practice. He would he would do little things like that. He'd take them to practice and do things and, and treat them like they were his, his brother. And at the time, I didn't realize his brother had passed away. So he was used to being a big brother. But this is what he would do. He was the nicest person, is the nicest person you'll ever meet. And as far as seeing him develop and evolve as a basketball player. It was poetry in motion. And he was just a really kind, loving human being. And I said, he's a better person than he is a basketball player. And he's an amazing basketball player. Well, quick, sorry, quickly. Did, did you also know Rick Pitino? Because wasn't he on that yeah, team? Yeah, Rick was there when I was there. I knew Rick, yeah. Okay, and how was he, how was he, was he, was he destined to be a coach? Did you, was he already? No, no, he was, he was, he was the opposite. He, he was like, uh, he was like a uh, fans, you know, he, he Drill fancy, you know, he was the last person I would think that would be a coach. All know? right. Well, a lot of people have bought into his systems. He's had a whole lot of success. Yeah, well, because when you when you know what it's like to be on the other side, you're really good at understanding 
what people are going through. So Rick has used his experience to be an amazing coach. There you go. Another lesson. Thank you so much, George. I'm going to turn it back to Tricia. You're welcome. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.